Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Christy Jansen, Chief of Staff at the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brudico, the Academy's President and Founder. Benjamin Schwartz, our Assistant Producer, is here at the controls. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit dedicated to elevating the consciousness of people in the business community and encouraging business leaders to use their power and influence to take greater responsibility for the communities and the environment their work touches. We are recording this show on November 20, 2019. Please email us with any comments or questions at info at worldbusiness.org. And if you have any ideas for future shows, we would love to hear from you. As always, you can listen to us on the go using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio. Just search World Business Academy. Also, I'd love to remind everyone about Solutions News. That's our other podcast. It's a weekly it's a radio show that we also put out as a podcast. And, Great show. And you can send us a note to find out how you can listen, or you can search Solutions News on your podcast player. In fact, you know, hi, Christy, thanks. And you know, I think this is a great in, uh, transition because by branch, mentioning Optimist uh, Solutions, News. Solutions News and Optimist Daily, which we do mm-hmm. usually during the show, what we're doing is helping people understand the various things that we deliver. So for those of you who are interested in keeping up on what we do generally, which is a plethora of things here at the Academy. It's overwhelming. <laughs> it really, <laughs> we can't bore you with it here. Yeah. So just subscribe to the newsletter. Our monthly newsletter. It's it's interesting. It comes with pictures for those who don't like to read as much. And and it gives you a quick update on all the different things we're working on. Number two, subscribe for free to Optimus Daily and start your day with an Optimus Zip. Because if you do a two-minute little dive into Optimus Daily every day, and by the way, I'm now tweeting. Let's say it called your sanity, your sanity lifeline. I call it your sanity lifeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if if you because you know it's it's gonna hit you walk up, you wake up, you start working, whatever. The negativity and the cynicism is going to hit you real fast. You're never going to make it to lunch without Especially having something these hit days. you. In fact, you won't make it till your first coffee break at 10. So you go to Optimus Daily, so it gives you that two-minute hit of five to ten stories a day, which you go, oh, wow, that's a solution I didn't know. Oh, I thought that was a problem. There's a solution. And, in, and, in, and that's what Optimus Daily does. The solutions news, we have a commitment. We never talk about anything negative without giving you the solution. We do talk about lots of problems, but we always have it, we frame it in terms of the solutions that right. we can In other words, address. we always do that. Now, on this show, we don't do that. No, this is our depressing show. <laughs> this, is, well, I, Dad, this is this is reality <laughs> TV here. This is reality radio, rather. So on this show, and you read what we do in the Academy, what we're trying to do with this show, as you all recall, is we're trying to help people get through these incredibly challenging times with whatever little bit of money they got in the bank account. And there isn't a lot for most people. And to help people like readjust to see the trends coming. This is really a lot of trends we cover. So that you can, hopefully if you're not in the right place, you can get to the right place. If you live in the Seychelles Islands, you need to move. Okay? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, but if you live in certain areas of the United States, now that we know it's documented that mobility between parts of the United States has been greatly reduced in the last two decades. Mm-hmm. It isn't true that if you lose your job making furniture in North Carolina, you can just get another one in Detroit. It doesn't work that way anymore for a whole bunch of reasons. We don't have that fluidity between the states. So if you're, gonna, if, if you're in a state where you can see a long-term negative trend coming, your best advice is get out. Now, sometimes those long-term negative trends are a result of industries having to re, basically to collapse and re, rebuild themselves. Classic would be Kentucky. Okay, if you don't know that coal's not coming back, no matter what Trump says to Kentucky, you're just not, you know, well, wake you're up living and smell in a coffee. fantasy land. Yeah, wake up and smell the coffee. That's over, right? If you think that coal production 
is going to be something that will be a factor in the economy in the in the weeks months, years, or even decades ahead, the answer is it won't. Yeah, I Con- think just last week, two of the largest coal plants in the country shut down, one yeah. in Arizona and one in Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's it's because of economic issues. It's not because of any kind of environmental activism. Yeah. And, and two more nuclear power plants closed uh, last month. So we're up to nine now. But anyway, the point is that if you are living in an area like that, where it's really not clear, what's the economy going to look like? You really should start examining, well, maybe I literally physically have to move because it takes time to move now because you have a house maybe. Or if you don't have a house, you got to find a place to rent one. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we're going to talk about today is how the rents are outrageous mm-hmm. right now. And if you were thinking, gee, I'll go to California because the streets are paved with gold, you'll find out that it's really hard to get here because the rents are too high. Yeah, the, the houses cost the gold. You That's right. To, yeah, to just so, a so rent a, one. So there's a disproportionate insane. cost of living here. Does that mean it's a loser? No, for the right situation, it might be right for you. But given climate change, it's going to clearly be a lot warmer in some of the places we used to think were too cold to have any fun where the dirt's really cheap, like Fargo, North Dakota. And, I mean, Vancouver, British Columbia is going to become part of the, the banana belt fairly soon. So my point of that is, if you are a sentient being, and you're conscious and you're aware, and, and, and you listen to this show, write in. Tell us, okay, I'm living in such and such a place. This is the stress I see coming at me. What's my best strategy? And we'll be happy to answer it on the air because we think there are millions and millions and millions of Americans in your same circumstance. And even more Americans, probably 100 million or more, have a very limited amount of savings. And therefore, you can't really afford to take a lot of risks. So um, I know. I mean, me, for example, I've, I'm now out of the stock market, but I'm not really doing much with my 401k right now. You buy gold? I, I, well, I don't know if I have that ability in my limited choices. You do. You probably do. Okay. I'll happily show you how. Okay. But if, for example... But, for, but, you know, like right now, I, you know, I think we'll get into the numbers, but... I know you were mentioning people are saying, why are we out of the stock market? Why are we out of the stock market? Shouldn't we go back in? And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. Okay, so I will. So let's do this. Let's just start with the topic of the day and do it really fast. We don't want to spend a lot of time on impeachment. I want to make one observation. That is, what's clearly coming out in the impeachment inquiry is no matter how much they doth protest too much, to paraphrase the bard, the Republicans are clear. They got a huge problem. Uh, and they don't know how to get out of this problem now. And what the problem is, is the emperor has no clothes and everybody's figuring it out except the 35 to 40% who, who Trump is correct. He could literally shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and 35 to 40% of the, of the electorate would say, okay. But that's only a third. Two thirds of the people in this country are really, really, really concerned. 70% of the poll released yesterday said, it's really clear what Trump did was wrong in Ukraine. And that was before what Sunderland testified to today, yeah. which basically p- points it, out that... It draws the line directly. It was always quid pro quo. Mar- and all of them knew about it. I'll Trump is directing it hands-on every single day. Absolutely. Which he does everything. Yeah. That's, that's the Trump... If you want to about Trump organization, that's how he runs his business. Well, whatever hope Mike Pompeo had of running for Senate in Kansas is probably up in smoke right now. Whatever hope Donald Trump had to avoid impeachment, clearly gone. Now, removal is a different issue. Mm-hmm. We'll see what the Senate does. But the Senate's in a heck of a bind. The bind is, if it doesn't impeach him, they have Trump at the top of the ticket, and he just lost the governorship of 
Kentucky, for God's sakes. Well, where even he, worse was Louisiana. And Louisiana right behind him. And and, and, and by the way, he lost Louisiana by over 40,000 votes. And did you know that he went and gave a speech the night before the election in Louisiana? Because he gave one the night Please. before. Please. Yeah, well, the one in Kentucky you was, help me hey, out. you got to give me a help here because I need for you to send him a message. And they'll say, if I lose if the Kentucky governorship, they'll say it's Trump's worst defeat ever, which happened. And a week later, he goes to Louisiana. He goes, now you heard what happened to me in Kentucky. You got to go out there, and you got to you got to really nail this for me because I'm gonna I'm gonna look really bad. And he lost by forty thousand votes in a state that's so red. I don't think there are hardly any Democrats below the level of uh, there's one or two in statewide offices, and everything else down the ladder are all Republicans. Mm -hmm. It bleeds red that state. Okay, so what's the corollary to the capital markets? The corollary is the stock market's got the same thing going on. The stock market is clearly a situation where the emperor has no clothes. I'm extremely pleased that gold get, continues to be, since we predicted a year ago, gold's up 20%. Same period of time, the stock market is up less. It's only 17, the Dow up only 13. So we're out. We're outperforming still a year and a half later, the stock market. So if you put your money in gold a year and a half ago, you did a lot better in the stock market. Even if you think 17% is great, we're going over 20% already in the gold market. And gold's going to keep going up, by the way. Stock market, not. Why? Fundamentally, the amount of problems we are facing in America, the challenges that President Macron in, in France, with the cover story of The Economist this week, said, we're in the precipice of crisis because of the absence of American leadership. NATO itself could be in jeopardy, as well as the European Union. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're talking about destabilization across a wide area of, of, of activity. Uh, the market is praying for a Chinese deal. But, you know, the last time that the Chinese tried to make a deal a month ago, as you recall, Trump said in October, well, we're about to sign a new deal. The trade war with China is almost over. And, and the deal he was going to sign at that time wasn't much of a deal. It was just a way to save face. And that deal disappeared. Okay, So, so the, the market, the stock market, is in imminent peril. Is it going to drop precipitously today, a month from today, three months from today? Can't tell you. But I can tell you this, it ain't going up. We've been right about that. And it's not significantly. And it's going to come down. It's not going to go sideways much longer. And when it comes down, it's going to come down with a thud, meaning a 25 to 30% drop, which will make the gold number look even better. Why do we say that? Because the fundamentals are fundamentally broken. I mean, if you look at, for example, 40% of all farm income this year, 33 of the $88 billion that they made, has come from some sort of trade assistance, disaster assistance, the farm bill, or insurance indemnities. It hasn't grown food. 40% from non-food activities in agriculture, okay? And by the way, I don't know if you heard, but one of the reasons Trump is having so much trouble getting to a Chinese trade deal is they offered to buy, I think it was like $20 billion a year worth of soybeans mm -hmm. to get him out of trouble politically. And he said, no, I want 50, as if... He has the right to choose. He doesn't have a leg to stand on. Not a leg to tell. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about um, the death of retail, okay, which, as you know, as retail dies, it puts tremendous pressure on shopping centers. And for those of you who don't own shopping centers, there's a whole expertise on that that we can bring into some future conversation. But 9,100 retail stores are going to close this year. Do you know what that does to the landlords? There isn't the shopping center of even the what are called A-plus prime shopping centers, that isn't receiving constant demands from their tenants that are still in business, hey, I need a rent reduction. Right, because there's no people. The less other stores you have, the less traffic you get. That's right. And 
I'm going to make the case that the middle class's ability to absorb has is gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, the, that the, the stores that are going to continue to do well in the near term are ones that are super cheap, like dollar stores, uh, smart and final, where if you really can't afford quality goods, you go there because it's really cheap and you don't have to buy as much as you buy at Costco. So uh, Yeah, I was even listening to a, a podcast this morning about how Halloween spending this year was down. Yeah. Again, what is the indicator that... It, well, I'm telling you, it's going to be a flat Christmas. In flat, I mean, if it's up by 1.5 to 1.7%, that's flat because that's inflation. So we are talking about now a Christmas that my guess is will be under 2% bigger than last year. If it's 25 to 3%, that would be a good outcome. Above 3.5% would be surprising. And why? Because people are running out of money. So go back to this retail thing. Why are all these stores going? 9,000 retail stores. And just to give you some idea, it's like payless shoes is planning on closing all 2,500 of its stores. That's not exactly a high-end retailer. No, that's a middle class. (laughs) That's a middle-class retailer, okay? In the span of 24 hours, all of these closed. Family Dollar, Chico, Charlotte Roos, together, 1,100 stores. So what we're talking about is that in 2018, retailers broke that record by closing 155 million square feet over the prior year. And I think 2019 is going to come in at that number or below. And 2020 is going to be just awful on a retail point of view. So that's another issue. That's, that's another fundamental, if you will. Still another fundamental is the rental increases, which I alluded to a minute ago. So right now, rents are dramatically outpacing wage growth. And it's happening at a time when new starts in construction have not picked up. Now, that's very unusual. It's anomalous. Hmm. Typically, when rents go up, it encourages people to build Mm-hmm. To a to fulfill the demand, particularly when you have, as we do right now, a really large clump of millennials who do not have housing, mm-hmm. who either can't afford it or are likely not to get it. So, rental uh, increases have outpaced wage growth for the first time since 2011. In 2018, I believe it's going to happen again in 2019. Then, when the, when the numbers come in, housing debt has increased dramatically, even though the Percentages, I mean, someone just called me last night to tell me that they were able to put a loan in effect for 30 years at 3.4% fixed Wow! on a home. That's amazing. 30-year fixed. That's, that's a bet that things aren't going to get real good real soon mm-hmm. that banks are making, okay? I'll give you another one. Bankruptcies. Um, Dean Foods. Uh, Dean Foods was the largest supplier of milk products in America. Went bankrupt last week. Their sales fell 7%, which, by the way, the profit fell 14%. But the stock has fallen by 80% this year, 8-0. Why? Because the sales of cow milk have declined in the past four years. And the reason is in part because people are making other beverage choices. So oat milk, oat milk, almond milk, almond milk for sure, um, and uh, soy milk. And people are saying, you know, three glasses of white milk from a cow every day, maybe not a good idea after all. Even for kids, let alone adults. I don't know who's, who, who in the recent past has been drinking three glasses of milk a No, day. but that's what, the, that's what they I know, pushed that was, with their lobby for all those years. That was, when I was a kid, that was the advertising, yeah. you know, got you milk. Know, sales of oat milk alone have increased by 636% just over the past year. So one of the reasons why these farm bankruptcies are happening is because of shifts in markets, milk being an example, but it's also because of a failure to adapt to technology 
as the economy requires change. So those dairies that are now capturing their methane and using it either for themselves for electricity or selling that electricity back to the grid are making more money indirectly from electricity than they're making from milk. And what's neat about that is it gives them the ability to hang on as milk prices drop. Mm -hmm. Now, we've done so many stories on this subject over the last, gosh, at least 14 years, because I remember writing, uh, and we call it brown gas. And what brown gas is, folks, is when you have a cow and it comes in to get milked, it defecates on this concrete floor, where the, it's called a milk shed, milking shed. They do this twice a day. So as the cows leave, someone hoses down with a fire hose the uh, cow manure, and it forms a slurry. And that slurry used to be something they would put into a settling pond, which then would hurt the groundwater, right? It would destroy the groundwater. Um, and it's sort of like flushing the toilet, if you will. What we wrote about, and this is literally 14 years ago, was the Mason-Dixon farm in Virginia, which was beginning to that point to capture its methane. Uh, and by the time we wrote the book in uh, 14 years ago, they'd been doing it since the 70s, and they were making more money from electricity than, than milk. And I don't know why people didn't follow that, but they didn't. And so they continue to make milk the same old way. They never got, they never collected the methane. They let it go up in the air, which is bad for the environment, bad because it's, it's a terrible greenhouse gas, mm -hmm. as you know. And they, they, it's sort of like, come on, you paid for the food that the cow ate to make the milk and the methane. Don't just let the methane escape. Mm -hmm. So that failure to adapt comes about at times Ca captured profit. Yeah, and I'm going to at the end of the show, I'm going to talk about how monopolies have been bleeding us, but, mm -hmm. but, but. But that failure to adapt is symptomatic of an economy that's stagnating. Mm -hmm. okay. um, I was reading a great story just this morning about uh, venture capital and how venture capitalists now are no longer pushing um, unicorns or other companies that haven't gone public yet to raise as much money as they can to grow as fast as they can. Now they're saying, you know what? Raise the money you need, but keep a bunch of it to get the break even. In other words, there's a huge push now to, instead of like shoot the moon, which was um, Uber, Lyft, which both have been tragic. In terms we work. We work is the big one I'm gonna get to. You know, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna probably lay, lay off 4,000 at least we work employees, which is about a third of their total employee base. Wow, that's crazy. Uh, and I, wait till you see what it's gonna do to their P&L when they start getting nailed on all these buildings that they have subleases on, then they won't have tenants for it, or not enough tenants, or dropping the, the, the valuation of the tenants, I mean, the price per square foot. Along those lines, by the way, and I think we may get into this later in the show, but that's hurting these oil wildcatters also. Oh, yeah. They, they were being getting tons of cash thrown at them, the last, especially the last few years, and that's evaporating. And yeah, a lot of them particularly are Particularly in the Permian Basin. In Permian, but also in the Bakken, Bakken Shale. Bakken too. Shale, too, but really the Permian Basin is really going to yeah, get hurt right yeah. now. And I think that's... Uh, because what the banks are realizing is even at a cost of, uh, say, $40 a barrel to frack, with oil at $53, $55, $56, and the total consumption per capita of oil globally going down, and you're talking about a period of time when the global economy is winding contracting. down, contracting, which always means less oil. So you're going to have less oil consumption, we do right now, in per capita, soon in total barrels. And as that happens, even when you take and lose people like Venezuela, and I know Benji was telling me earlier today that people are starting to turn their lights out on ships and sneak into 
Caracas and load up on illegal oil, you can only do so much of that. You know, it's, it's tough to float the global yeah. oil yeah. economy. You've got Iran, who's been frustrated in getting its, even though it has brand new oil fields discovered, getting its oil to market. And, and you've got now uh, Iran basically saying, you know what, if we can't get our oil on the market, maybe we're going to stop you guys from going through the Strait of Hormuz. Now, what could happen? Well, what could happen is you could have a massive oil spike if something really went wrong in the, in the Strait of Hormuz. But if you did, that would be temporary because even that would just drive the change faster. So what's happening are two aggregate conditions, fundamentals. One is we are switching from fossil fuels to survive to non-fossil fuels. So there's a substitution for oil. And the economy itself is dropping, which means less oil to be consumed as we're substituting. That's why it will continue to go down. And that's why oil companies are no longer a good bet. Um, I guess the best uh, thing to quote here would be Aramco, most profitable company in the world. And so the MBS has said, uh, you know, the guy who runs Saudi Arabia said, uh, we're going to put it, we're going to float the stock on New York Stock Exchange with a two plus trillion dollar valuation. Well, it looks like he's going to come out at 1.7 trillion. He's not going to be able to get on the New York Stock Exchange because that's that's way overpriced. I'm going to say at least 500 billion. So that company's worth 1.2 to 1.3 trillion tops, and that's dropping. So what's happened is they don't think they can sell it to the Western world. So they're only going to put float the the shares in Saudi Arabia for Saudi Arabians to buy. Basically, now I don't think institutional investors are going to go in there. I don't think sovereign wealth funds, except their own, will go in there, or their allies who will do it to support them. But at the end of the day, when, when the largest, most profitable oil company in the world, who has the lowest cost of production, so when, and it's the lightest and highest quality, the mm -hmm. least amount of sulfur. So when the oil markets continue to drop, the one company that will be the last person standing, assuming political stability, is Aramco. Aramco. Mm -hmm. And even that values down to $1.2 trillion. So, um, and I just want to go back just a second to Dean Foods and the, you know, so farms, as I said earlier, that don't adapt because of the stagnation mentality are going to go bankrupt. And sure enough, in September, farm bankruptcies increased to 24% from the previous year, which is the largest amount since 2011. And by the way, the highest in the state of Wisconsin, which is interesting. What's going on in the Midwest is farm bankruptcies, soybeans being one, milk crisis, mm -hmm. because they didn't adapt to the changing technology quick enough. They still can. And by the way, a meat crisis. I mean, there are more and more alternatives to ground beef, for example, right. are coming on. Absolutely. That's, that's scaring them. Although yes. that's different, I guess, than the dairy farm. But it's still well, it agriculture. Well, it is. It is because it, well, it, it's two things happening. It's 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 a change in dietary. Mm -hmm. So, in the West, particularly here in Europe, we're beginning to realize how much healthier it is to eat less red meat. There's many different studies on it. Nobody has come out with a study that says eat more red meat. Some studies say don't eat any red meat. I think that's extreme. I so think the cattlemen uh, lobby might have come up with a study like that. <laughs> <laughs> they heard from the oil companies, there's no climate change, so why should there be a crisis in meat? <laughs> anyway, so you're talking about a major change structurally in the food production industry, mm -hmm. whether it's because China's not buying our soybeans and won't resume buying them in the indefinite future. I mean, they may buy a little bit just to make Trump happy, but basically... The farm economy is not coming yeah. back. And, and, and I mean, right here, we were talking earlier about how farm debt right now is as high as it's almost ever been. Yes, it's very, very high. At least since the, in, the last, in the last four decades. Yeah, very, very high. Um, the other thing that I don't have any documentation right here in front of me, but maybe we should look this up. I think China and Saudi Arabia, Russia, these people from these countries are buying up farmland. It's going bankrupt. 
and foreign actors are actually getting invested in American farms. Yeah, and, and that'll be interesting because what are they going to do with the dirt? Well, if they if they don't, in other words, if they don't address the fundamental issues associated with it, for example, we are we have a declining, on a relative basis, a declining wage. In other words, we, the growth of wages relative to the cost of living has not kept pace. No. So if you have dirt, but you can't build homes on it because millennials aren't buying them, and you can't put new factories on it because new products aren't required when the economy's winding down. We, we said on this show last, I'm sure it was over a year ago, we said that in projecting to 2019, we said we, the year will end up at 1.9% GDP. I now think that we nailed that. That, that. That's most of the consensus when they were talking about 3.5%. I said, silly. Economists are now kind of generally going it's 1.9. I think 1.9 would be an optimistic outcome. I could can see, depending on how Christmas sales go, we could end up at a 1.8, 1.7. We certainly are not going to end up at 2.5. And the 3.5 was like somebody's smoking rope. I mean, that was just crazy. So, so the wage growth is stagnating. Um, we have an overabundance of low-quality jobs. Since 1990, the U.S. has created 63% of the production and super, non-supervisory jobs are basically at low, page, low wages. So that how much money can they spend? Well, we've talked on the show for the last year about how good raising the minimum wage is. And that has been the, the two things that enlisted the economy in 2019 were the sugar high from the, ta the, the Trump tax cuts, which we said on this show were crazy, that they would never pay for themselves. They would dramatically increase the debt, all of which came out to be true. And we said that um, there'd be a sugar high, kind of like the elephant that passes through the python, at which point, at the end of that sugar high, yes, you have a little more consumption going on because people are not going back below minimum wage and they're driving it up, but they've spent all they can spend relative to what the economy needs to happen, and it's not enough to keep us from having to, the Fed says, lower interest rates at a time when the unemployment rate is so low. Why? Because people are underemployed. They're doing, these are, these 63% of the jobs I'm talking about are in extremely low wage positions. Okay. Uh, and of course, we talked about the housing is skyrocketing. All of which, when you take all of this together, and by the way, the job growth in, in October wasn't that good. 126,000, 128,000 jobs. We were running, coming out of the Obama years, we were running at about 250 to 275. A month. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're, we're down dramatically. It's been suppressed pretty much the entire year. Yes, it has. Even with the recent revisions upward. Yeah, and as a result, September. finally, you see consumer confidence coming down. They don't believe anymore. And this is back to my comment, you know, the emperor has no clothes. People are beginning to realize, gee, it isn't going to be that much better for me next year. What am I going to do? Well, when people think that, they tend to spend less. Mm -hmm. And saving rates go up. And the trouble is this time, savings rates don't generate income for you because you don't get anything, any yield on it. Well, yeah, there's tiny interest rates. Yeah, so the little person is getting hurt in two directions. Mm -hmm. So that's my, um, my quick overview on the economy. If people want to know, um, I didn't get a chance to comment on Israel, unfortunately, but I guess there's no, no time for that today. If, if people would like to know more about how you can reposition yourself to deal with the coming times, um, just keep listening to the show. Tell your friends to listen to. And if you get depressed, start listening to Optimus Daily and start looking at Solutions News because those will both help you get through this dark period. Now, um, what we're going to do with the show today, I'm going to end with this interesting story I'm going to throw out here. 
Uh, and and um, you want want to mention that we're going to be recording another on episode Monday. on Monday. Yeah, right? and, and, and Monday we're going to do something special. I'm going to take maybe five, ten minutes, which mm -hmm. is a lot in the show, to talk about reforming capitalism. Okay, yeah. Because some of my favorite billionaires are scared to death now. Mm -hmm. Ray Dalio, Mike Bloomberg, Benioff uh, Mark Benioff, yeah. uh, Paul Tudor Jones. I mean, people I really like who made their money the old-fashioned way, they actually earned it, and who are thoughtful about what they think the economy needs to do and who believe that people, the average person, must do better for the economy to do better. Let's let's save that for, for Monday, yeah. the 25th. We're going to do a yeah. special show yeah. on reforming yeah. capitalism. You don't want to miss that one. It's Among some great. other things. We can do some deeper dives. Okay, yeah, we will. So um, for today, though, I want to close on this. What people don't realize has happened since 1990 in the United States is that we have, we've gone from freer markets, a more even playing field, to a more rigged market. So we are a capital markets economy as opposed to a command economy. Command economies like Russia or China, we say, here, you make that much and they make it, whether mm -hmm. you need it or not. A market economy, which is what we are, the market adjusts to what you want and the price you should pay for it as long as there is a free movement in and out of the market. Mm -hmm. When you allow barriers of entry to occur, what happens is the whole economy starts getting less efficient. And that's what's happened to the United States since 1990. If you look at where we were, these are some interesting statistics. Say 20 years ago for right now, because I've got some numbers in front of me from 1999. The, if you look at internet service, cell phone, uh, plane tickets, all of them are cheaper now in Europe and Asia than they are in the United States. In 2018, according to data cable, uh, gathered by a comparison site Cable, the average monthly cost of broadband, for example, was $29 in Italy, $31 in France, $32 in South Korea, $37 in Germany and Japan. The same connection costs $68 in the United States. Well, so, I, I pay $85 for mine. Yeah, so we, be, we went from being a low-cost provider to the highest provider. In other words, we let our economy become more calcified. Mm -hmm. we, 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 we didn't pay attention to the fact that certain oligopolies and shared oligopolies and monopolies were jacking up the prices. Mm -hmm. And because there's no entry, for example, the reason the cable bills are cheaper in Europe is in France, you got five choices for cable. Right. Here you got two if you're lucky. Most of the people only have and one. And I have one. The reason mine is 85 is there's no other choices. So right. It's cocks or nothing. That's right. And so those restrictions on the economy have turned the table upside down, whereas Europe, Asia, and Africa used to be more expensive than the United States. Now they're less expensive for basic stuff, which of course means there's less money for people to spend when their wages are already constrained. And, and by the way, uh, I, I saw this cute little article in The Atlantic about how it used to take 15 administrative steps and 53 days in the 1990s to legally start a business in France. 15 days I mean, 53 days, 15 administrative steps. Today, it's only four days. They basically cleaned out all that calcium that was clogging their bones. And they go, okay, how do we make this thing more flexible? So the irony is that the free market ideas and business models we created in the United States and exported to the world, they're all using and we're not. I'll give you another one. There's a woman, and this is why I wanted to end on this today. Her name is, and I hope I'm not mispronouncing this because I'm wild about this woman. I see her name in print all the time. Margrethe Vestager. Most people don't know who she is. She is the European Union's commissioner on competition. She's the one who's been making all the waves the last five years, breaking up tech deals. For example, she single-handedly broke up the combination of Siemens and Alstom, France's mm -hmm. train company, Alstom, Siemens, Germany's train company. They merged. 
She stopped the merger and she said, wait, there'll be less competition for high-speed rail. We don't want that. Mm -hmm. Broke it up. She's the one who's been assigning all these huge fines to tech companies for privacy violations, for all kinds of things. And she just did something very unusual. She became uh, the first, I think, EU commissioner competition to actually run for and get a second five-year term. And usually you're, it's, a, it's over in five years. Have, has there been an EU commissioner of competition for much longer than the last five years? Yeah, she wasn't the first one. Okay. She was the second or third. But, okay. but the idea is... It's a relatively new role, though. Relatively, but it's, you know, the EU's been around for a while mm -hmm. now. I, I think there's, it's, it's goes back at least two to three commissioners before okay. her. Mm -hmm. So, but the point is, she just got reappointed by a very big change in the guard in Europe, I might add. And that woman, by taking the position she has that she's going to reduce anti-competitive activity... We now, as American companies, are being run by rules written in Europe because they're better than our own rules. And so when you see all this falderall that the current administration engages in, all this shell game stuff, and all the ways it takes dives for domestic industries, you know, I, it, it, you can't, it doesn't work anymore. We're in, we're in a global economy. Mm -hmm. And so if, if the rest of the world is going to streamline their business efficiency, it means that the United States is going to fall further and further behind. Uh, Laissez-faire uh, antitrust has turned out to be a complete failure. It's an even bigger failure under the, trust, under the Trump administration than it was under Bush, and it wasn't that great then. It was better, way better. And it wasn't, frankly, brilliant under Obama, a little better under Obama than Bush. So it, it, we haven't had good enforcement mm -hmm. of antitrust for many, many years. In fact, I would say we reached our pinnacle um, in the Ted Kennedy era, when he was running the Senate Antitrust Subcommittee. That's when, when, when Ted Kennedy died, it took another five or 10 years for it to all fall apart, but it did. Mm -hmm. So I just want to share real quickly, two things happened that basically reversed a huge chunk of the business world, both related to the Chicago School. So the Chicago School, Milton Friedman, had this theory of laissez-faire antitrust and because uh, the more profits a monopoly makes, then it will draw more competition in, therefore leave it out. That's not true if there are barriers to entry. And what we've done in this country since 1990, so for 30 years, we've been putting barriers to entry in place. Mm -hmm. So that we've gone from dozens of companies in a particular industry to one or two. And we for the airlines. So it's cheaper to fly in Europe today than it is in America. Mm -hmm. And that used to be where it was two to three times as much because they have a lot of competition between the startup low-budget carriers and the legacy carriers, we don't. So there's all these different things that happen. Well, the Chicago School basically said laissez-faire will produce all this competition. It doesn't and didn't. The second thing they got wrong is Milton Friedman basically said in 1970 that the purpose of business is to make money for its shareholders, period, full stop. We at the Academy in 1986 said that's not true. The purpose of business is to serve its stakeholders, which are its, first and foremost its employees. Its shareholders, of course, are part of it, but its employees, its customers, its vendors, its shareholders, the communities it serves, and even the biosphere. Mm -hmm. Now that that has come out from the business roundtable, and 186 of the top CEOs in America have signed on to that, I believe what you're going to see is a complete renaissance in business thinking. The problem is it's going to happen at a time when the economy is going down, decreasing. Mm -hmm. And for that, I think it's a, it's it's we're in for... A rude awakening, but I do believe an awakening that will, in, in the end, will serve our interests. Because if we become more competitive again, 
not only will we be a stronger economy, we'll start to free up the extra surplus we need so that millennials can afford houses. Mm -hmm. And so that we can take our crumbling infrastructure and start building bridges and hopefully one God, high-speed rail. And I'll just leave you with this one thought, in, in two thoughts actually. Number one, I just took a train to San Diego over the weekend because I had to go to some meetings. And a place that took me three hours and 15 minutes to drive home from took me five hours and 45 minutes to get to on a train. Think about that. Now, it was more comfortable. I was able to work on my laptop the whole time because of Wi-Fi. But at the end of the day, that's a very long time when I should be able to get to San Diego in about an hour and a half, you know, if I was in Europe. In fact, I, in a state like California, to go from San Diego to San Francisco should be a straight shot on high-speed rail faster, frankly, than what I've been taking for 30 years on the East Coast because the, the trains on the East Coast between Boston and Washington, D.C., the Metroliner, are not that good by European standards, but they're superb by American standards. If we had the Metroliner in California, I'd have made it to San Diego in two hours mm -hmm. and instead of driving for it. Well, that takes more cars off the freeway. Also means we consume less fuel, oil, less oil, right? So there's a whole opportunity here, which I think is really wonderful. And I'd like to end on that and one other thing. We discovered that Copenhagen, because of three fires, rebuilt itself into one of the most beautiful, pedestrian-friendly, thoughtful, great cities in the world. I'm sorry about what's happening in California fires, but if we realize that we're going to now completely re-envision how we construct homes in any kind of remotely dangerous area, we will have picked up an enormous benefit from the tragedy of the fires this year. So far, we haven't agreed to do that. Mm -hmm. We haven't started building fire. We're still doing stucco and we're still doing single frame houses. Final point on that is, if in fact, we learn how to start building houses for the conditions we live in, we'll be exporting that technology around the world. Just as we'll be exporting the technology for microgrids because, as you were telling us when we came on the air, another 285,000 people are gonna lose power today? I think it was like 450,000 people. It was two million last week. Mm -hmm. uh, Marin County was without power for six or seven days. San Francisco Bay Area for two and a half days. Ventura keeps getting their power shut down. Yeah. And so if we use this crisis, you know, one of my favorite lines is, you know, this is too good a crisis to go to waste, right? Right. If we use the crisis and use it to turn into microgrids and stop this footsies with PG&E, a criminal enterprise, convicted of five felonies, take them out of the business. Let's take over their lines and start replacing them systematically, substation by substation, with microgrids, and not rebuild or pay at least a billion and a half to two billion more to rebuild a system that's gonna catch fire, that they're gonna keep shutting off by their estimate for at least 10 years. Right. By right. their estimate. Yeah. So I just think this is an opportunity to really move forward. If we do, we'll create more surplus, the economy will grow better, we'll all be happier, and frankly, we're right. living in a fairer society. So let's leave it there for now. We can talk about reforming capitalism and building smart for the future on Monday when we come Great. back. And uh, that's it for today. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. See you soon.